Well, once again, to remind you uh, of Peter's purpose here for writing this letter, Peter's writing to people who are experiencing difficulties, hardship, suffering. Peter refers to it as various trials, all kinds of things going on. It's believed that one of the major things that may have been going on to the people he was writing to is that they were suffering uh, persecution for their faith in Christ. Uh, These people are suffering. We suffer, right? Amen. We, we do. There's a lot. There's various trials in our life, right? Uh, here's what I want you to understand. My trial may not be a trial to you, but it's a trial to me, right? Your trial, you know, vice versa. Everybody's trials are different, and everybody's trials are their own. So we should not minimize anything that anybody's dealing with just because we don't deal with that or never have dealt with that. There's people suffering. And you, you know as well as I do, when you suffer... You have those times when you ask questions that you may not ask at any other time. I call them the what ifs, right? What ifs. This this trial can go from this to what? With what ifs. Man, that thing can grow and it can become huge. We're asking these questions that we may not have asked beforehand. And when we do that, we often lose our way, right? The what ifs mess with our our thinking. And and as Christians, we kind of get off track. Peter says here, if you're you're going to stand firm in those times of suffering, you must know who you are. Peter's goal is to root these believers in their identity as people who've trusted in Christ. We saw that in the first sermon we did in in 1 Peter. In other words, I'm not getting my identity from my circumstances. My circumstances, my various trials, what's going on in my life does not identify me. Sometimes... You know, you've been around people like that. We kind of fall into that ourselves, that our circumstances become our identity. This is who I am. And that's when we begin to lose our way. Our identity is not our circumstances, but instead, instead of being born again to a living hope. Peter helps the believer when he has a hole in his gospel. You remember me talking about that? We have a hole in our gospel at times as we live here. And he tells them that we must understand what it is that God is doing in the here and now. What is it God's doing in this situation? God, in, in, in your times of suffering, here's what you need to understand. In your times of suffering, God will take you where you would have never planned to have gone yourself, right? Most of the time, we're figuring out what? How to get away from that. How to stay away from those things. God will take you places that you've never planned to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Today's verses that we're going to look at, Peter wants the believer to think and consider. He wants us to do that. How remarkable, how great, how amazing this salvation is that we've been given. We lose our heads in our suffering. And we forget just how great a salvation we have in Christ. He wants us to live with a deep sense of joy, a deep sense of gratitude that's so rooted in God's grace that we can't be shaken when things become difficult in our lives. If you're looking at your handout, here's the main idea. Forgive me for the length of this. Focusing on the greatness of our salvation allows for joyful endurance and suffering. Focusing on God's grace, this amazing grace, this great salvation, focusing on that allows for joyful endurance when we're suffering. Look at your hand out there, verses 8 through 9. Your inexpressible joy in Jesus. 
When we think about Jesus, when we think about our Savior, when we think about this great salvation, verse 8 gives us how to respond. Trials, suffering, heartache, difficulties, various things going on in our life. We, we focus on this great salvation, this great grace that we know that's come our way. When we think about Jesus, here's what Peter says we do. Notice we love Jesus. Though you've not seen Him, what do you do, church? You, you love Him. The fact that we haven't seen Jesus should not prevent us from loving Him. The difficult times we go through should make us, matter of fact, love Him more and more and more and not less and less. Our love for Jesus is not based, Peter says, on physical sight. Your love is based on your spiritual relationship. Your love for Jesus is because of a living hope that His perfect life, His death, and His resurrection is made possible for you. You love because Jesus made it possible for you to be born again. No longer dead in sin, but made alive. You love Jesus because His death and resurrection made it possible for you to be brought out of darkness, brought you out of being a slave to sin, to being a slave to righteousness. In other words, your life has been changed. Love for Jesus Christ in response to His ultimate love for us as seen in the cross, that's the fundamental motivation of the Christian life. Love for Jesus is motivated based on what He's done on the cross for us. Think about this. No cross, no Jesus. Guess what? Suffering, hard times, and nothing great to live for. No salvation. You ever wake up... I wake up some days and I wonder, what if I face today and I realize that there was no gospel, there was no Jesus, and it was just this life for me to live and endure? Have you ever thought about that? What would it be like to do that? Why do we love Jesus? Why is it we love Him? We love Him because of this great gospel, this great salvation. But Romans chapter 5, verse 5, tells us that the Holy Spirit of God has poured out God's love into your heart and you are to return that love to Him. That verse tells us that when we're saved, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit of God takes God's love and He puts it into us. And we're to do what with that love? We're to return that love to Christ because of His salvation. Love Him in verse 8, if you'll notice there. It's in the present tense. It means you continue loving Him. You never stop. You continue loving Him. We should love Jesus more and more every day. That's what Peter's saying. You love Jesus. You continue to love Him. Now, as a means of application here, that sounds pretty simple, right? Love Jesus. I mean, you know, how many of you ever heard that before? I'm not telling you nothing you haven't heard before, right? But we're what now? Help me, church. We're what? We're sheep. We're dumb. We're ignorant and we forget. How do we love Jesus? How do we do that? Well, I think in relation to the context of 1 Peter here, you love when you find yourself in some hardship, in some trial, and you're hurting. When life is tough, when life is hard, Peter says, love Jesus. You love Jesus by lifting your heart to Him, not because of what's going on in your life, but because of what He's promised you in this salvation. You lift your heart to Him and you worship Him. Because of what He's promised you in this salvation. You love by worshiping Him. Why? Listen to me. Why do we do that? Why do we worship Jesus in a hard time? And you're going, Preacher, you just don't understand my situation. Well, I may not. But you don't understand mine either. We love 
by lifting our hearts in worship to Jesus. And we do that because, listen, because doing so will take the poison out of the experience and replace it with some healing medicine. There's poison in our lives when we're suffering, right? And that poison wants to do what? Move us away. But when we turn our hearts toward Jesus and we think about this great salvation that we've been given and we worship Him, that's kind of like salve on a wound, right? It brings healing. Now my question for you is this today. You've heard that. Love Jesus. But here's the big question. Are you loving Jesus? That's pretty simple. Are you loving Jesus today? Or... When hard times come, do you replace love for Him with any substitute that the world will offer you? Right? Hurting, hard time, difficult time, and the world comes along and offers me whatever it is, and I go, that'll that'll help me, right? It'll help you for how long? Whatever, and then you're right back. Do we... Do we run to Jesus and replace our love for Him with the substitute that the world gives us? Do we look for uh, hope and other things instead of running to the cross? Love Jesus above all else and trust that He knows what He's doing in your life, right? Pray that Jesus would have the supremacy over all your affections. I pray that for myself every day. I have a list of things that I pray through for Debbie every day. There's ten things on there that I pray for her every single day. And one of those is that she would have a greater love for God, that He would have the supremacy over her heart, even over my life. Would would Jesus be more important to her than me? Because, by the way, if that's the case, then I really get love when she loves Jesus. If there's love in your heart this morning for Jesus, it's because you've been born again. It's because you've been transformed by God's grace. And notice what He tells us next. We need to trust Jesus. We love Jesus, but we also trust Him. Though... You do not now see Him, you believe in Him. Believe is in the present tense too. By the way, everything that we're being told to do here is in the present tense. You continue believing. Don't stop believing. Don't stop trusting Jesus. Don't doubt His goodness, His faithfulness, His kindness. Believe in His life, His death, and His resurrection that secured your salvation. Believe in that. Keep trusting in that. Christian, you are to love by faith and not by... Anybody know what comes next? Sigh. The just shall live by faith. You live by faith, trusting, not by sight. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Everybody here knows what that verse is, right? You probably memorized it. You you might miss a word or two here and there, but you give you a few minutes, and man, you can spit that thing out. Here's what Romans... 8.28 doesn't say. It doesn't say that we will see all things working together for good. It says that we know all things work together for good to those who love God. We don't see it. We know. We're trusting. Right? Believing means surrendering all to God and obeying His Word in spite of the circumstances. Love and believing, they go together. When you love someone, you trust them, right? Think of someone you love. Really, they, they capture your heart. It, it may be your spouse. I certainly hope that's the case. Children, it may be your parents. But when you love someone, you trust them, do you not? Where you find love and faith, you find confidence for the future in your life. Notice in verse 8. You love, you trust, and you rejoice. 
and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Just like verse 6, the word used here is greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoice. Does anybody want to guess what tense it's in? The present tense. Indicating we're to continue doing it. You greatly rejoice in your trials. Not because of the trial. Don't misunderstand. Not because that you don't rejoice because of that trial, but because of what that trial is going to do in your life. Does anybody remember verse 7 from last week? Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The next two words, so that. Here's the reason. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You greatly rejoice because you know in that trial that God is what? He's working to do something in your life to test your faith, to validate that faith, to grow you in your faith. When it comes to Jesus in verse 8, it says you greatly rejoice. But notice what it tells you how to rejoice or what that rejoicing should look like. With joy that is what? Inexpressible and filled with glory. Notice that you greatly rejoice in trials. Notice that. You greatly rejoice in trials. But listen to this. Don't miss this. You greatly rejoice in trials. But when it comes to Jesus, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy that is inexpressible. That word inexpressible means higher than speech. That's what that word means. He has the idea that you can't do justice with your words. Those who live in a relationship with Jesus experience such joy that, in other words, they can't explain it. It's hard to find words. You ever been in a situation where you, you just couldn't find the words to explain something? Whatever it was, it was just kind of it was beyond you. I have times like that when this verse in my life, when I begin to think about the gospel and what God has done for me and what comes in my life and and the suffering and the heartache and I begin to focus on this great grace that's been brought into my life. I begin to thank God for that and there there reaches moments in my life where I can't even express that. That's the idea here. Notice here it says, joy that is inexpressible and it's what? Filled with glory. It means to render highest praise. To render highest praise. You might not be able to rejoice over the circumstances, but you can rejoice in them by setting your heart and your mind on Jesus. You know, I've noticed in my own life that every experience of trial that comes in my life helps me learn something new and something more wonderful about my Savior. Every single thing that comes in my life changes my life and makes me Love Jesus because I see just how wonderful His salvation is. You, you ever been this way in your life or know somebody? When life is just kind of going good and everything's going just as a Christian, we kind of do what? Jesus kind of takes a back seat. Well, everything's good. You know, I don't need Him. But when something happens, where do we go? Ring the bell. Where's my divine bellhop? I'm in trouble. Come help me. What should you do when you face trials in life? It's simple. Right here. You keep loving Jesus, you keep trusting Him, and you keep rejoicing in Him. But I'm sorry that I don't have any profound way 
for you to do that, but the Bible's pretty clear. What should you do when trials come, when hardships come in your life as a Christian? You keep loving Jesus. You keep trusting Him. And you keep rejoicing in Him. Look at verse 9. Verse 8 says, You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. But verse 9 says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining means receiving for yourselves. Receiving for yourselves. The idea is that of appropriating more and more of the blessings of God. Does anybody want to guess what tense that's in? The present tense. The continual process of appropriating more and more of the blessings of salvation. The big picture here I think Peter says is that this manner of living in verse 8 is what it looks like for God to be saving someone through faith in Jesus. What does it look like for someone to be saving, being saved through faith in Jesus? Verse 8, they what? They, they keep loving, they keep trusting, and they keep rejoicing. And God continues to give us the blessings of salvation in this life. Maybe not deliverance from our circumstances, but because of those circumstances, He's just going to do what? He's going to grow us and mature us in our faith. Look at verses 10 through 12. Here we see your great salvation. Peter's reminding the believer just how great the salvation is that we have. He's reminding us. Those that Peter's writing to, now listen, that includes us. We don't get a pass. He's writing to these you know, early uh, Christians in the church. and he, This doesn't apply to us. No, he's writing to us. He's writing to us and to those. And he's saying this. You are blessed to live in a time. Listen. You are blessed to live in a time when the predictions of the Old Testament prophets have come to pass. The Old Testament prophets saw far off what was coming, and as we're going to see here, angels continue to marvel and they watch. But you actually experience that great salvation. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. First thing, your salvation is great Because it's the message of God's grace. Your salvation is great because it's the message of God's grace. Peter uses that word grace here in verse 10. He'll use it in verse 13 as a synonym for salvation. That's what he's talking about. Grace is what, church? It's undeserved favor. What kind of favor is it? Is it something you work for that God gives you? No, it's undeserved. Grace is receiving something you do not deserve. Here's what you as a believer need to understand. You can't appreciate God's grace until you understand how unworthy you are to receive anything other than the judgment of God. See, that's our problem a lot of times. We think we deserve something good from God, but in actuality, all we deserve is His judgment. Grace is God's mercy to us. God could have Sitting here today, Christian, God could have sent you to hell and He would have been perfectly just to have done so. We don't, we, we don't understand that. We don't think about that. God sending people to hell, well, He's just to do that. But it's only when you and I realize just how much He has forgiven us that we love Him much because of the wonder of grace. 
Sitting here today, if you know Jesus, you have done nothing to deserve that. But God in His grace let you hear the gospel. He moved in your heart by His Spirit. And He took away your blindness. And He broke your hard heart. And you had faith to believe. And you trusted in Jesus. All because of God's grace. Not because you were born in North Carolina and you live in Franklin County. That had nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with who you are. It's all of God's grace. Our salvation is great because it's the message of God's grace. Let me tell you this. All of you sitting here today, that means that there's hope for every sinner, no matter how great a sinner he is. And that's good news, is it not? That is hope for every person on the face of the earth, no matter how great a sinner they are. That is hope for people. It's hope for the guy you work with that sits in that other cubicle on the other side of you when you go to work. It's that neighbor you run into in the field or when you're moving cows to the sale. And I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Whatever you do in your job, wherever you go, that sinner you encounter, that grace is for him. Those children you teach in school, their lost parents, those teachers you work with, those administrators you work with, those people you work with at the the bank, those people you work with in the office, they need this grace. Let me say this. The only thing that keeps some of you here today from experiencing God's grace is your pride. Which tells you that you're a good person and you don't need grace. Can I tell you something? Good people are not in the Bible. That is not a concept that you even need to be thinking about. You need God's forgiving grace. So here's what you do. You confess your sin and you trust in the cross of Jesus that is sufficient to completely forgive all your sins and make you right with God. Nothing else will do that for you. Number two, notice that your salvation is great because it was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and they inquired diligently. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Malachi, all the prophets were God's voice of hope. When you read the Old Testament, in particular the prophets, what they are saying is there's hope, there's grace. They prophesied, they foretold of God's saving grace. But notice they searched. I find this very interesting. They searched and they inquired carefully. After proclaiming God's grace, listen to me, after proclaiming that grace, they then sought the meaning of their own prophetic writings in order to know all they could about God's promised salvation. That's what this is saying. The Holy Spirit of God inspired them to proclaim the grace, but then after they proclaimed it, they what? They searched and they inquired carefully, wanting to know more about this grace that they were telling everybody about. These men raised up by God were directed to write such an incredible an account of redemption that they didn't fully understand all that they had written themselves. Now let me clarify something here. It's important to understand that, as it says here, that the prophesied grace that was to be yours does not mean that the prophets looked forward to a saving grace that did not already exist in the Old Testament. This is kind of a... Uh, You've got to balance this. Salvation has always been available to sinners and always and only by grace. 
There, has, there was never any question in the Old Testament whether or not God was gracious. Never a question of that. But the manifestation of His grace would come when Jesus come on the scene. Now you're saying, well, how does that work for people in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? Let me ask you this, church. How is it you and I are saved? It's by what? Faith. The same faith that saves you is the same faith that saved people in the Old Testament. Example, Abraham, right? Abraham believed and it was what? Counted unto him as righteousness. That's in the Old Testament. You go to Romans chapter 4 and what does it tell us about Abraham? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? I don't have time to tell you everything, but if you read the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham. He gives him a promise that through him, many descendants will come and from those descendants will come who? Jesus, who will save the peoples of the world. What did Abraham believe? He believed that God says, righteous. Abraham and the Old Testament people looked forward. They believed that. God said, righteous. You and I have it. And we look back, we look back and we go, God says, righteous. We believe. You see the difference there? It's faith. It's on, two, it's on one end of the cross. And this side of the cross. They looked forward and believed. You and I do what we look back and believe. It's the same faith. Look at verse 11. Talking about the prophets. Peter says, inquiring what person or time. Now notice this phrase. It's kind of, it's sort of, this excites me. I don't know whether we you or not, but inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in it. Now who's he talking about? Old Testament prophets. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, where was it at? In them, by the way. That's inspiration there. The Old Testament prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit of Jesus to write, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Here's what Peter's saying. The prophets, as they were accurately and specifically predicting exactly how God would provide salvation that you and I desperately needed, those prophets were guided by none other than who? Jesus Himself. The Spirit of Christ in them. Somebody ever says, I see that in the New Testament about this inspiration thing, but I don't see it in the Old Testament. Well, they haven't read what the New Testament says about what was going on in the Old Testament. It was the Spirit of Christ who was guiding these prophets to prophesy. Jesus didn't do what He did to fulfill prophecy. Listen. He didn't do what He did to fulfill prophecy. The prophets prophesied because of what Jesus would do for sinners. Jesus told them what He was going to do. Now listen, they didn't fully understand that because after they proclaimed it, what they do? Searched and inquired, wanting to know more about this salvation. Think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, spoke to these men about the kinds of things He was willing to suffer for mankind. How amazing is that? Hundreds and hundreds of years before, God was in charge of the process. And those things that would be done, not because the prophets had predicted them, but because Christ had decided that this is what He would do for you and me. He was telling that to them. And Jesus came, He left heaven, He came into the world and willingly subjected Himself to the hardships of life in a fallen world. And not only that, but He willingly died in order that the wrath of God would be satisfied. You could be forgiven and become a child of God. Do you understand 
what it is you have been given. Do you realize that the sovereign God was controlling all the events of human history to bring a Savior into the world? These stories are in the Old Testament. They're not made up stories. They're actual things that happened. But God was controlling everything in the world to bring salvation into the world. For hundreds of years, He was Lord over every situation, every location, every circumstance. By the way, some of you are going through the book of Daniel right now in your Sunday school lessons, right? You know what Daniel's all about? It's about the sovereignty of God. All those kings rising up, all those nations falling and beating each other up. Guess who was in control of that? God was. He prophesied. I mean, that was coming. God was in control of everything. Nothing was happening outside of His will. All of it was controlled by Him so that at a particular point in time, Jesus would come. All because God had placed His love upon you. Let me ask you this. Do you celebrate the grace that you have been given? Do you rejoice that when God looked upon you, He saw nothing worthy of grace, and yet, in spite of your unworthiness, He saved you? Think about that in your own life. You look at people sometimes, and you, you uh, what do you do when you look at people? You decide whether they're worthy of my attention or not, right? Go ahead and shake your head. Aren't you glad that God doesn't do that? Are you here today with other believers to celebrate the grace of God that comes to you through His Son? Are you here for that reason? Is that what brought you here today? Or have you come today not eager to worship, but eager to get this over with so you can get on to more important things? Do you ever stop and meditate upon the grace of God and celebrate that you as a believer have received the undeserving favor of God? Which, by the way, forgives your sin and declares you right with God? Or are you just satisfied to have your get-out-of-hell-free card? I don't know about you, but I see Christians living that way, and I can't see how there could be joy in their life if that's the only thing they're worried about. There's something amazing in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. God raised the Old Testament prophets, and I named off a bunch of them earlier, so that through their ministry, you would have the Word of God, which very clearly witnesses to Jesus, to who He is and the work that He would do. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And the work of the prophets was for you. Can I let you on a secret? The Bible is not about you. It's not about me. But it is for you. It's for pointing you to Jesus who you desperately need as your Savior. If you go to the Bible thinking this is about me, you're going to be very disappointed. Look again at verse 12. The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter uses that word preach there in, in, in a general sense. And by that I mean that part of the work of salvation is that God, by His Spirit, has raised up people so we hear the message of salvation. That's what that means. It's not confined to the Old Testament prophets, but it's a, it's a word that's for us. 
Now, here's the application based on what I'm saying there. Can you think of that person for yourself that you need to be preaching and proclaiming the gospel to? Can you think of the names of people? The other side of the coin here. Can you think of the names of people that the Holy Spirit used in your life to bring the message of salvation to you? Can you think of some people who God used to do that? Boy, I can. I think of a cousin. His name was Freddie. He was my Sunday school teacher. He was my daddy's first cousin, making him my second cousin. And when we got to Sunday school every Sunday morning, when the door shut, it was on. He opened the Bible up, and man, he, he gave it to you. He preached Jesus. And I remember that. God using him to work. See, it would be years later before I would ever accept Christ. But I sat in that class and I heard him week after week point me to Jesus. Maybe that was your parents. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a co-worker. Maybe it was a relative. Maybe somebody previously unknown to you. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing that God would use someone else to speak the gospel in your life. But I want you to hear something. It's not that Jesus hundreds of years ago spoke to prophets who would give us the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God who now proclaims that Word to the mouths of other people. And the Holy Spirit of God who opens hearts so they're able to hear. Listen, I'm not calling you prophets, but you are proclaimers of the Gospel. Is that how you see yourself? You say, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a preacher. But what you forget, all believers are commissioned by God to go make disciples. That was not just for the twelve that He was speaking to. That was for everyone who would come afterwards who would trust in Christ. As a born-again believer, you are the mouth of the gospel. Notice the end of verse 12. I love the end of verse 12. Peter says things in which the angels long to look. We've read that before. We're just kind of like, yeah, okay. The angels who are watching with amazement, they're watching this transforming grace of the gospel. They're watching that. They're watching relationships being formed with lost people. They're watching the Spirit work through the Word. Watching someone begin to understand their need for forgiveness. They watch as people grasp the suffering of Jesus which redeems them. They watch people receive God's grace. Angels see that. They're watching that. They watch a heart that's transformed. They watch sanctification take place in your life after you're saved. Angels are looking at this amazing thing that's happening. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, it says, The angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. You remember the day you got saved? You know what was going on in heaven? Angels were rejoicing. The angels are being amazed at God's awesome work of salvation. Now the question is, are you amazed? We get comfortable with that. The cross of Jesus was the greatest event in the history of the world. Nothing that happens or ever will happen compares to the cross of Christ. And can I tell you this? It's not education that we need. Education is good. 
I've had plenty of it. But it's not education that we need. It's not universal health care. It's not economic equality. The greatest need of humanity is the grace of God. Sin has separated all of humanity from God and sin has made us dead, unable to move toward God. Humanity has a great problem that it can't fix. Christian, let me challenge you today. You need to celebrate God's sovereign grace that He has placed His love on you and saved you from your sin. You need to celebrate that. There's no doubt about it. I stand here before you today. Life is tough. It can be hard at times, right? And those times will cause you to question the wisdom and the faithfulness and the love of God. Will they not? There will be circumstances that don't make any sense to you whatsoever. There will be times when it doesn't seem like you're being loved. Been there? In those times, God's Word says you need to focus on the great salvation that you have. In order to stand firm in those times, you focus on the grace of God. If you're saved, nothing can take that away from you. Nothing. Cancer, death of a loved one, hard times, wayward children, a marriage that's kind of messed up, nothing can take that away from you. Let me speak just briefly to those of you here today who don't know Christ. You may be saying, you know, I've heard this gospel, but I've never heard and understood the gospel, particularly maybe like this. I would encourage you right here where you are today, when we give the time of response, that you would bow your head and you pray that God would open your heart. And He'd open your eyes to the grace that you so desperately need. The call of God today is don't leave here today. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him and trust Him. Let's pray.